Well, hey, good morning. Um, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. If you're new with us, my name's Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors, and just want to let you know we're really glad uh, that you're here. Um, we've been in a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so if you've got your Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, this morning. Uh, now, my grandpa is one of those people that can basically fix uh, anything, and that, that's especially true when it comes to cars. And so uh, I'm sure this did happen when I was in high school and college, but I really just can't remember a time uh, when I had to take my car into the shop because anytime something went wrong on my car, I was able to just take it to him and he was able to fix it. And usually for him, uh, he was able to fix it pretty easily. And even before I started driving, just when he was working on his own car, and then even after when I would bring him my car, he would show me what he was doing uh, as he fixed the car so that when this happened again in the future, I would know what to do uh, and I would know how to fix it. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, I was young and dumb. It's not like I'm old and wise now. I'm still young and dumb. But uh, I was young and dumb at the time. And, and I guess I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be close to him. I'll always live in the same area. And so uh, if I ever have anything I need to get fixed on the car, I don't need to learn this. I can just take it to him. He's going to do a much better job than I would anyways. Right, well, a few years ago, we moved from Oklahoma to North Carolina, and he's still in Oklahoma, and I'm sure you can gather, that's a pretty far drive to take a car that needs to be fixed. And so I just can't tell you over the past few years how much money we have wasted uh, taking our car into the shop to get it fixed, uh, something that honestly, if I just would have paid attention to him, we probably could have saved most, if not all, of that money that we've spent on cars uh, over the past few years uh, if I just didn't think that, that what he was teaching me really didn't apply to me, that it was really kind of a lesson for somebody else, that it was really just something I was never going to need. And we, we, we've been in this section of 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about food offered to idols. And in, in chapter 8, he introduced this and he said, spiritual maturity, your, your growth in Jesus, you know you're growing not by how much you can assert your freedoms and your rights and how much you know, but in how much you love, how much you're willing to let go of those rights and lay those down and not exercise them if it's going to love and serve a, a brother or sister here in the church. Last week in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul gave us a lived-out example of this from his own ministry, how he gives up his right to be paid for his preaching so that he can present the gospel in a way that wouldn't cause a stumbling block to people who had not heard the gospel before. Uh, here in chapter 10, he's going to address this problem from another angle and talk about when the Corinthians go into the idol's temple and eat meat that's offered sacrifice to an idol they're, they're flirting with idolatry, and they're giving themselves over, opening themselves up to demonic influence. And so we're going to talk about idolatry and temptation this morning, and really what Paul wants to hammer home is that this is not somebody else's problem, this is ours. This is not a lesson that really just applies to somebody else, this is a lesson for us. He's even going to bring up multiple stories from the Old Testament to show us that, that that's not something that just happened long ago and far away, that this is directly speaking to us and, and our problems and our issues that we need to address right now, that God is addressing us through his word uh, even today. And so let's see this together in the text. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we're going to read the first 22 verses. Starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, 
and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them, them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Pagans and, and idols and demons, oh my, right? A uh, lot of fun stuff in here. So here's how we're going to walk through this passage this morning. I, I think this passage lays out uh, four things that we need to do if we're going to endure temptation and not give in to it. And the first thing uh, that the text shows us is that if we're going to endure temptation, we have to see Israel's story as our story. Uh, because Paul opens up here by saying, hey, I don't want you to be unaware about what happened to our fathers. And what's interesting about that is he calls Israel their fathers, even though uh, most of the ch church at Corinth would have been made up of Gentiles, people who were not Israelites. But because of what Jesus had done for them, Israel was their people. The Old Testament story is now their story. This is their fathers. And so he reminds them of what happened in the Exodus in the wilderness wandering. All of the nation of Israel at the time came out of slavery to Egypt. All of them passed through the Red Sea and were baptized, in a sense, into the leadership of Moses in and through the Red Sea. They uh, were, had God's presence with them in the wilderness in the pillar of cloud and fire. They ate the spiritual food, the manna that fell from heaven. They drank uh, spiritual drink from the rock that Moses struck to bring water. And then uh, Paul clarifies that that rock that was struck was Christ. Now, I just want to commend to you just reading your Bible again, just reading it so that you just are more familiar with its story because 
just knowing the story of the Bible is really helpful here because that's what Paul is drawing on. Paul's drawing here uh, on Exodus 17. Exodus 17 uh, is when the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're thirsty, so they start complaining. They basically say, God brought us out of slavery to Egypt just to let us die of thirst in the wilderness. And so uh, Moses brings this complaint to the Lord and the Lord says, okay, here's what I'm going to do for them. I'm going to stand on top of this rock, and Moses, I want you to strike the rock when I do that, and when you strike the rock, water is going to come out, uh, and they'll be able to drink. And so this happens in Exodus 17. All of the nation of Israel drinks the water from this rock that Moses strikes. Uh, And then in Deuteronomy 32, at the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Moses gives Israel a song that sums up their journey from Egypt to the edge of the Promised Land. And in that song in Deuteronomy 32, Moses repeatedly refers to God as their rock, the rock of Israel that was with them in the pillar of cloud and fire that protected him them with uh, his presence, uh, the one that stood on top of the rock and was struck to give them water and blessing and life. And Paul again clarifies here and says that rock, the God that traveled with them, was Christ. Jesus is the one who was struck not just to give them water and life, but to give us water and life. When he is on the cross and his side is pierced with a spear, what flows out of his side? Blood and water. I think deliberately trying to echo back to Exodus 17 and to tie these two things together uh, in our mind that this rock was Jesus. But, but really what Paul is trying to do with all of this and bringing all of this forward is trying to show us that we are in the exact same situation as the Israelites were. That, that we have been delivered from slavery just like they had. That they had been baptized under the leadership and into the leadership of Moses, their human deliverer and representative. And they had left their old life of slavery in Egypt behind and were beginning to experience the freedom of new life, just like we have been baptized into Christ and experienced the freedom of new life and leave our old life behind in the waters. They drank spiritual drink. They ate spiritual food, just like we do in the Lord's Supper. They had God's presence journeying with them and traveling with them in the wilderness, just like we do. But then verse 5 is the key. Look at it again. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Because of their persistent disobedience and unbelief and idolatry, everybody over the age of 20 that came out of Egypt besides Joshua and Caleb were not allowed to go into the promised land. They, they were judged. Uh, they had all the same blessings. They'd experienced all the same blessings that we have and do as a church, and none of that prevented them from perishing in the wilderness. Paul's trying to warn us against the dangers of idolatry, and he's doing that first by showing us that, that just getting baptized does not save you. Taking the Lord's Supper does not save you. Participating in and being a part of the life of the church does not save you. You can go through all those rituals. You can experience all of those blessings and still perish in your unbelief. Paul's warning us about the danger of flirting with idolatry, and the way he does that first is by reminding us that if we're going to avoid that and not give in to that, we first have to see Israel's story as our story. Because listen, so many of us uh, read the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, like it's just some historical document about a people long ago and far, far away that really doesn't have anything to do to us and really doesn't concern us, 
which is why so many of us struggle to read it and and eventually give up reading it, uh, especially in places like Leviticus and Numbers. But, But Paul is telling us that that's wrong, that that's the wrong way to read it. I mean, look again at what he says, verse 6 and verse 11, that things, ha- things happened as examples for us. Verse 11, that they took place, it happened to them. So this is a real historical event. It really did happen, but it was written down for our instruction. It was written to us. Listen, the Bible is not written to somebody else. It's written to you. It's written to the church. Like, listen, all the people that these stories Paul is referencing about, they were dead when these stories got written. They were not around to read them. This is written to you. The entire reason these stories are even in the Bible is for our instruction so that we would be able to see our lives and our stories as part of this story. Because so often we think, you know, because the Bible's so culturally foreign and it's so ancient, we've got to apply it to our lives. We've got to find some kind of timeless principles that we can draw out of it and bring into our modern day. And the truth is that we need to apply our lives to the Bible. We need to see the Bible story as our story because this is not somebody else's story. This is your story. And seeing this as your story helps you actually rightly interpret your life and know how to live it and know how to live in it. Because look, most of the examples that Paul uh, gives here in this passage come from the book of Numbers. I mean, who would have thought Numbers is that relevant, right? If we're honest, most of us haven't even finished the book of Numbers. But Numbers is relevant because Numbers is your story. And seeing it as your story helps you rightly live into the story. Because look, this is where we are. This is where we find ourselves in the story. We have been redeemed from slavery by the blood of the Lamb. We have journeyed through the waters in baptism. We've left our old life behind in the waters. We are experiencing the first fruits of the freedom of new life. We are journeying in the wilderness towards our our true home, the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with God forever. And, And while we journey in this life, in the wilderness, towards our true home, Jesus has not left us to ourselves. He's given us gifts to strengthen us on the journey and to strengthen our faith, the Lord's Supper, and He is present with us. He's journeying with us so that we would not stall out along the way, so that we would not get ourselves into idolatry and eventually turn away from God and be judged. If we're going to endure temptation, if we're going to live rightly, we have to see Israel's story as our story. We have to see that this is where we are, and ultimately that means we need to listen to God's warnings from this story. And so look again uh, at verse 6 at, at how he takes this next. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So again, he reminds us this took place as examples for us so that we wouldn't make the same mistakes, so that we wouldn't perish because of idolatry and unbelief in the wilderness. And he's going to walk through uh, four examples of how the Israelites did this to warn us uh, so that we wouldn't make the same mistake. And so the first example he gives in verse 7, he says, we should not be idolaters as some of them were. And then he quotes from Exodus 32, verse 6. Exodus 32 comes from the story when Moses is on top of Mount Sinai uh, receiving the Ten Commandments and the instructions for the tabernacle. 
and, and the people down below uh, get restless, and so they tell Aaron the priest to make them a god that they can worship. And so Aaron does this. He makes a golden calf, and they uh, sit down to eat and drink and worship in front of it. And then they rise up to play. And when it says they rise up to play, it's not talking about yard games like volleyball and cornhole if you're picking up what I'm putting down. Like they're engaging in pagan worship practices in front of this idol that they just ate and drank in front of. And because of that, many of them are judged. 3,000 people were killed as an act of God's judgment on that day. The second example, verse 8, he says we should not be uh, sexually immoral as many of them were, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Uh, he's referencing the story from Numbers 25. Let me read the first th- couple of verses of Numbers 25 for you, and tell me if this doesn't sound uh, exactly like what the Corinthians are arguing, that they have the freedom to do. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, have to make sure that you put the stress on the right uh, pronunciation there, uh, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, a, a false god, an idol. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So notice how closely tied together these two were. The, the people of Israel started sleeping with the Moabites. Then they went to the sacrifices that the Moabites made to their idols. And then they eventually uh, went all the way into worship of these gods themselves as well and were judged for that. Uh, One person I was reading pointed out how the only two things that we're explicitly told to flee in 1 Corinthians are sexual immorality and idolatry, Uh, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, I think that uh, because the Bible's commands about sexual immorality and homosexuality are just so clear uh, that when you start sleeping with someone in some way that you're not supposed to, uh, eventually you have to redefine God into your own image and make him into an idol so he won't condemn that in your life. But if that feels like, oh, that you're kind of free to do that, it's no big deal. This warning stands to us. Uh, the Israelites did that, and 23,000 of them were killed and fell in a single day. It's not just, hey, you do you, you do whatever feels right to you. Like, this earns the judgment of God. The third example he gives in verse 9, that we should not put Christ to the test as many of them did and were destroyed by serpents, comes from Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, they complain again that God has brought them out of the desert, uh, out of Egypt, just to kill them in the desert, that he's not a good God, he doesn't provide for them. They talk about, oh man, we ate so much better in Egypt, Pharaoh was such a better master than you are, God. This is what it means to put Christ to the test. It's to fundamentally not believe in him, to not trust him, to almost dare him to judge you, to mock him and dare him to judge you. And in this case, uh, he did. He sent snakes, serpents among the people that when they bit you, the bite felt like fire, uh, and then it eventually killed you, which is a pretty rough way to go, right? And so they're judged for this. And then he gives a fourth example in verse 10. And he says, we shouldn't grumble as they did and, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is either referencing Numbers 11 or Numbers 14 when the people complain that they're sick of the manna that God has literally giving them food out of heaven that they don't have to do anything for. They're sick of that, want meat to eat. And then 14, they won't go into the promised land because there's giants in the promised land and God's going to let them die if they go into the promised land. They continue not to trust God, and God uh, eventually judges them for that. 
And, and so Paul gets to kind of his big point in giving us all these examples in verse 11 and says they happened as examples for us, for our instruction, so that we would not make the same mistakes, that we would learn from their mistakes. And so he says in verse 12, hey, if you think you're strong, if you think you can't fall, if you think you're so spiritually mature that flirting with idolatry won't affect you, you better be careful that you don't fall. I mean, think about who Paul is talking to here. These Corinthians are arguing they can go into the idol's temple and meet, eat meat offered in sacrifice to idols, but Paul just gave them example after example after example after example of people who uh, started flirting with idolatry and eventually apostatized, went headfirst into idolatry, turned away from God completely, and were judged. Like They shouldn't think that they're ex- the exception to the rule. If we're going to endure temptation... We have to listen to God's warnings. We have to take this seriously that judgment is coming for people who walk in unrepentant idolatry and give themselves over to that. And so ultimately that means if we're going to endure temptation, uh, we have to run from idolatry. Look at where Paul takes this next in verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So Paul gets to kind of his big main point in this passage and says, in light of all of this, you need to flee idolatry. Don't flirt with it. Don't make a pros and cons list and try to judge what for yourself. Like, run away from it as fast and as far as you can. And then he begins to give us some examples to illustrate just how dangerous flirting with idolatry is. And the first thing he talks about is the Lord's Supper. He says, when we take the Lord's Supper, don't you realize that you're participating in the body and blood of Christ? And when he uses that word participation there, that word that's used there is also the word for fellowship, for having fellowship. And so when we take the Lord's Supper together as a church, we are having fellowship with the risen Jesus, uh, and we're experiencing, we're participating in the benefits of His sacrifice, His broken body, and His blood shed for us. Like we have real spiritual communion with Jesus. Jesus, because He's alive, He's not dead, He's alive right now. He's present with us by His Spirit in a special way when we take the Lord's Supper together as a church. It's one of the places that He's given us to have real communion with Him where He strengthens our hearts by faith in a way that uh, you just can't get just kind of in other places anywhere else. And, And so because of that, that's why we take the Lord's Supper every week. Like, we want to experience and enjoy the benefits of the gospel, remember his sacrifice, and we want to have real spiritual communion with the risen Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 17 and talks about how this also unites us together as a people. Maybe if you're kind of familiar with church life, you know that uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is that they believe that when the priest blesses the elements in the Mass, in the Lord's Supper, Uh, the bread and the wine literally transform, uh, they transubstantiate into the body and blood of Christ. 
Now, I don't think at all that that's what Paul is saying here when he talks about the Lord's Supper. I don't think that that's what happens, but what he does seem to say is that it's not the elements, it's not the bread and the cup that are transformed into the body and blood of Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. It's us. It's us as the church who is transformed and transubstantiated and transfigured. We, in a real sense, we become what we eat, the body of Jesus. We are united as one body around Jesus when we take the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul is going to talk more about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, but he's bringing it up here to show us that when you participate in the worship of something like this, you have fellowship both with it and with uh, the other worshipers. And he gives another example of that in verse 18 about Israel. He says, when the priest offered the animals in sacrifice and ate part of that sacrifice, they shared in the benefits of that sacrifice, and they had fellowship with God, uh, who they were sacrificing to. And then look at how he turns this in verse 19. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And so remember, the Corinthians are arguing that they're free to go into these idols' temples and eat meat offered in sacrifice to an idol in the temple because these idols aren't real. They're not really gods. They don't really exist. And Paul says, yeah, you're right. They're not gods. They don't exist. But what stands behind them are demons. And when pagans make these sacrifices to their idols, they're literally sacrificing to demons. And when you participate in these idol sacrifices, you are having fellowship with demons and you're opening yourself up to demonic influence. When you do this, you're giving yourself over to this in this way. And, and giving yourself up, opening to demonic influence. And so Paul tells us, hey, like you need to flee idolatry, uh, not just because it's unloving, but because you're opening yourself up to demonic influence, because demons are coming into your life and, and affecting you when uh, you do this. And, and what it would be really easy for us to do here, and we do this all the time when we read the Bible uh, it'd be really easy for us to, we, we just find all these different ways to take ourselves out of the story uh, and to talk about how uh, this really just doesn't affect us. This really just doesn't apply to us. Because, and it'd be really easy to read a text like this and to think, okay, well, there aren't any idols temples in America. There's no uh, meat that, that we could eat offered to an idol. So, uh, yeah, I should probably avoid things that like directly open myself up to direct demonic influence like Ouija boards and tarot cards. Uh, but, but beyond that, like this really doesn't have much to say to me. Listen, we do that. Uh, we find ways to take ourselves out of the story because we want to avoid God confronting us in our idolatry. Like, look, you shouldn't read a story like this and think, man, uh, don't eat meat offered to idols. Okay, check. Let's move on to the next thing. You need to read a story like this and think, what am I giving my heart over to? What am I looking to for security? Because that's what an idol is. And we, we, we've talked about this so much, but I want to just keep coming back to this when the text brings it up, because this is really pride and idolatry are at the root of every sin that we commit. 
An idol is just whatever you elevate to the level of God in your life. It's whatever you look to to do and be for you what only God can do and be for you. It's whatever you look to to give you meaning and identity and purpose in your life. An idol is whatever you look at and say, I have to have that or I have to keep that to be happy. It's whatever you look at and say, if I were to lose that, I could never move forward. I could never be happy again. It's whatever you fall back on as a security blanket to say, as long as this is still true about my life or in my life, then I'll be okay. I'll know life is worth living. An idol is whatever you will sacrifice other things for to either get more of it or to keep control of it. Uh, Let me give you kind of an example of this that's just kind of playing out right before our eyes. Um, So Tom Brady, after he had won his third Super Bowl in 2005, he sat down for an interview, and uh, he said this in the interview. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I, this, I, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? And so the interviewer asked him, well, what's the answer? He says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I, I think that's part of me going out and trying to experience other things. Well, since that time, uh, Tom Brady has won four more Super Bowls, so now he has seven Super Bowl rings. Uh, and after last season, he retired uh, from football last season And uh, when he retired, his wife Giselle talked about how awesome it was that he was going to be home more and she was going to get to spend more time uh, with him and the kids were going to get to spend more time with him and just how much she was looking forward to all of that. Uh, But just a little while after he retired, he decided he was going to come back and play at least one more season of football. And so he did that. Uh, And then in October of last year, he and his wife Giselle ended up getting divorced because of that decision. And after that divorce, uh, he was being interviewed again, and he was talking about in the interview, he said, because of football, I haven't had a Christmas or a Thanksgiving in 23 years. I haven't got to celebrate uh, birthdays of family and friends that were born uh, from like August to January. Uh, I've had to miss weddings and funerals all because of football. And so it's not like he's unaware of the sacrifices that he's making, but, but still knowing all of that, he was willing to lose his marriage for, for one more season of football to have one more chance at winning a Super Bowl ring. Uh, for, he was willing to lose his marriage and sacrifice it on the altar of the glory that he might get uh, from one more season of football. Because surely this can't be all that there is, right? I mean, surely this, this, there's got to be more than this. And this is what idolatry does to us. It, it puts the carrot out in front of your face and says, hey, just a little bit more. Sacrifice a little bit more and work a little bit harder and then you'll finally get there and you just never do. It never satisfies. You never reach it. And what 1 Corinthians is telling us is that when we give ourselves over to idolatry like this, uh, when we open ourselves up to this and we pursue this, we're opening ourselves up to demonic influence. And when the Bible talks about demonic influence, don't think of it like the movies. It's not like little demons kind of trying to stab you with pitchforks and scare the mess out of you. Demonic influence is about demons getting you to try to destroy your life and destroy yourself from the inside out. That's what happens when you give yourself over to idolatry. You open yourself up to demons, letting you do this work of destroying yourself and your life from the inside out. 
I think one of the best uh, people who's put this the best is uh, David Foster Wallace in a commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College in the early 2000s. So David Foster Wallace was not a Christian, but I think he hits on this so well. In that speech, uh, he said this. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles. Once again, uh, he was not a Christian. Uh, I think he's wrong to equate all of those, but I think he is right about what follows. He says is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And because idols do this to us, because they disappoint us and they disillusion us and they don't ever satisfy, what we do is we feel like we've got to keep sacrificing more uh, to get to that thing that we feel like will satisfy us because surely the problem can't be with the idol, the problem has to be with us. And so, for example, if you worship money and achievement, if you look to that to satisfy you, you're eventually going to have to sacrifice your family and friends and all sorts of other things on the altar so that you can work more to try to earn more money or rack up more achievements and accolades for yourself. And you'll sacrifice your integrity because you'll lie and you'll cheat if you feel like it will earn you more money or it will get you into a better position. If you worship marriage and family, uh, you'll have to sacrifice your spouse and kids on the altar of uh, unrealistic expectations that no human being would be able to bear. And so you'll either crush them under the weight of those expectations, or you'll just drop them and move on to something or someone else new when they stop making you happy. If you worship people's approval, you'll sacrifice all your beliefs and convictions, and you'll jump through whatever hoop you feel like you have to jump through just to keep people's attention on you. If you worship security, you'll sacrifice any sense of peace of mind that you might have because you'll be so busy trying to control everything in your life that you're just not going to be able to control. You won't trust God and you won't trust others because you'll be too busy trying to trust yourself and trust your bank account and trust your abilities. You'll sacrifice generosity, generosity with your money, generosity with your time, and all sorts of other things to try to serve this idol and to feel like you have this illusion of control. Man, on and on and on we could go, but I think you just need to ask yourself the question, like, what is this for you? What, what is it that you worship? What is it that drives you, that energizes you and gets you up in the morning? What are you looking to to have meaning and purpose and identity in your life? Whatever it is, the, the more you give yourself over to that, the more you're opening up your life to have demons uh, wrap the chains tighter and tighter around you and enslave you further and further so that you wouldn't be able uh, to get out of this and you wouldn't be able to set, uh, get free from it, which is why Paul tells us to flee it. 
to not see how close we can get to it, to not see how strong we are and if we can handle it, but to run from it. Because not only is idolatry bad for you, not only does it destroy you, it, it earns you the judgment of God. I mean, that's what all these stories from the Old Testament have been, examples of people who thought they were strong and flirted with idolatry and eventually apostatized, went completely into idolatry, and because of that, were judged. Paul is bringing us back to this issue because this is really the central issue in question of your life. Who or what will you worship? But, but let's just be honest with ourselves. Uh, the influence that we've given to, to demons and idols in our lives is incredibly deep. Like these, because we've given so much influence over these things, they have real hooks in us, hooks that are not going to be easy to shake. I've told you this before, but I'll, I'll just tell you again, like, I, I so struggle with the idol of just worshiping and longing for and craving other people's approval and acceptance and affirmation over my life, and I, I just have never been able to fully shake it. It's just shifted from one thing to the next that I look for it in. First it was sports, and then it was relationships, and now it's ministry, now it's preaching. And I'm so content, I so want God to get the glory when I preach, as long as he makes sure to let me have some of it for myself as well. As long as people are saying, as long as you're thinking and saying, man, that was so helpful. Ryan is so gifted. He's such a gift to us. Like, this is so deep-rooted in me that, that if I'm honest, I don't think I've ever been able to preach a sermon where there hasn't been some aspect of this motivation uh, lurking in my heart, no matter how bad I try to fight it. And I think if you were honest with yourself, you would admit that these idols that you've given yourself to are incredibly deep-rooted in you as well. That these uh, longings are so deeply rooted in you that, that just telling us to run away from them and to stop doing them is not going to be enough. Right? Like, I, I've tried that. I, I've tried the whole, hey, just don't care what people think about you. And I'm sure you've tried other things like this as well, and it just doesn't work. Uh, these idols are so deep-rooted in us that if we're going to be free from them, if we're going to be able to run from them, we don't just need something to run away from, we need something to run to. Well, good news, this is exactly what God gives us in the passage, in the verse that we skipped over a little bit earlier, verse 13. If we're going to endure temptation and not give in, ultimately the way we do that is you have to trust God's faithfulness. Look again at verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so in the midst of this warning, Paul gives this encouragement to say, yeah, if you want to pursue idolatry head first with no desire to repent and no desire to God, you're going to be judged for that. That will earn you judgment but if you want help, if you want freedom, if you want more of God, God is faithful to give it. God is faithful to give you help. He's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. Now look, that does not mean that God will never give you more than you can handle. He frequently does so that we would learn to depend on Him. But it does mean that God will never put you in a situation where the only way out would be for you to sin. God never makes any of us sin, and when we are tempted, God provides a way of escape so that we would be able to endure that temptation and not give in to sin. 
which means that if you want help, God is faithful to give it. The, the way of help, the way of escape that he gives is, is by trusting the faithfulness of God. Because look, we worship our way, this is, again, this is all about worship. We worship our way into sin. We don't think our way into sin, which means we can't think our way out or hard work our way out. We have to worship our way out of sin. You and I give ourselves over to idols because we are putting our trust in them to do and be for us what only God can do and be for us. And so the only way out is to trust the faithfulness of God to be God for you, to love and worship God more than you love and worship the thing that you've given yourself over to. The way you do that is by seeing and trusting and believing in your heart the faithfulness of God. Like that's the phrase that should be ringing out in your heart and your mind from this passage. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful on both sides of the equation, as God and as man. God is faithful as God. When we had done nothing but have been unfaithful, when we've done nothing but be covenant breakers who have rebelled against him and have looked for life in anything and everything outside of him, instead of leaving us to ourselves in that, God pursued us. He came after us, and he forgave all of our sins and reconciled us back to himself forever. He's faithful as man when everyone before him had gone out into the wilderness and had fallen and given in to temptation and idolatry. Jesus did not. Jesus came as a man and like Adam and like Israel, went out into the desert and was tempted by the devil, tempted to worship demons. And what did he do? He didn't give in. He endured temptation. He was faithful his entire life. And then he went and laid that faithful life down freely on the cross for us and died for our unfaithfulness. And then he rose from the dead to defeat our sin and our unfaithfulness forever. Which means that any of us who will put our trust in Jesus have been fully freely and forever forgiven of all of our sins and have been brought back into the family of God. Look, through Jesus, you really do now belong to the family of God. God is your Father. And look, seeing this and believing this in your heart, it's the way out of temptation to idolatry. Because when I see and I believe and I get it into my heart that God loves me and is for me and accepts me and delights in me and, and likes me, like doesn't just put up with me, likes me and wants to have me around, that the God of the universe feels that way about me, man, then I'm increasingly freed up to not have to enslave myself to trying to get that applause and affirmation from other people. Because even if nobody else ever approves of me again, I have the, the smile of the creator of the universe, his love over my life, and his delight in my life, and his opinion is the one that ultimately matters most. When you trust and believe in your heart that God is in control of your life, and he's a good and faithful God, so you can trust him with your life, and then you're increasingly freed up to, to not have to try to control everything, to not have to play God in your life, and you can just rest in the good providence of God over your life. When you get it and believe in your heart that God loves you and is not against you, he's for you, then you're increasingly freed up to stop treating your spouse and your family members and your friends and your job and all these other different things as, as, 
as things to use and tools to use to get these things for yourself, you're increasingly freed up to just see them as gifts and love people and serve people because that's what Jesus has done for you. It's the gospel. The gospel is the way out of temptation, the way of escape, getting the truths of the gospel into our hearts. The gospel that Jesus has lived in our place, that he's died in our place, that he's rose from the dead and has defeated death, sin, and our unfaithfulness forever. That that we belong to the family of God, that we can now know God, not as a judge, not as an enemy, but as a friend. When that truth gets into your heart, And it gives you a freedom and a joy and a satisfaction that no idol will ever be able to. So you've got to fight temptation with the gospel. You've got to remind yourself. You've got to preach the truths of the gospel to yourself and get them into your heart every day. Because temptation towards idolatry, it's real and it's strong. But God is stronger. God is faithful. He gives a way out. You can endure. The gospel is the way out. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you uh, for this message that even a message full of, uh, a text full of warnings um, calling us away from what will destroy us. God, you give us the hope and the encouragement that you will be with us, you will help us, you will strengthen us, that we don't have to give in. So God, I pray you'd give us the grace to believe that, to actually believe that we don't have to sin, uh, that we don't have to give in, uh, that we don't have to just fall to temptation uh, when the temptation is strong. God, help us to believe. Help us to see our lives in this story and interpret them rightly as part of this story. God, help us to listen to your warnings, to not think that we're so strong and so knowledgeable and so advanced that we, that we could flirt with idolatry and not open ourselves up to, to influence and eventually perishing. God, help us to run from idolatry and to trust your faithfulness. Would you do that work in our hearts even now as we come to the table? Jesus, would you strengthen our hearts by faith like you promised to do at your table? I pray that you would in your name. Amen.